Sir, there are people who will see this as the Justice Department restraining free speech. This is a political trial. Your Honor, I'm not with these guys. I never even met most of them until the indictment. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Is this prosecution politically motivated? Eject. I'm not with them. Do you have contempt for your government? We're not going to jail because of what we did. We're going to jail because of who we are. Don't tell the court what it does and does not know. We carried certain ideas across state lines. And for that, we were gassed, beaten, arrested, and put on trial. Welcome to the trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention, and violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today. And you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. We begin by hearing from Aaron himself in conversation with your host and narrator, Krista Smith. Well, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Aaron Sorkin today, the writer and director of The Trial of the Chicago 7. We're going to be talking about why he wanted to tell this story, the creative choices he made along the way, and why these historical events are resonating so strongly today. Let's take it back to the beginning, because I know the journey of this film has spanned years. On a Saturday morning in 2006, I was asked to go to Steven Spielberg's house, which is unusual. You know, Steven and I don't hang out uh, uh, together. And he told me that he really wanted to make a movie about the terrible riots in Chicago in 1968 and the crazy conspiracy trial that followed. And I said, sure, uh, I'm in. I want to write that movie. And as soon as I left his house, I called my father and asked him what riot happened in Chicago in 1968 and what was the crazy conspiracy trial that followed. I'd I'd never heard of any of it. I, I was just saying yes to Stephen. And I heard the word trial in there, and I like that. <laughs> I wrote the first draft. I had to do research for a while, then wrote the first draft, turned it in, and the next day, the Writers Guild went on strike. Mm. And that strike lasted a while. When we all came back, there were other commitments that we had. And that's when the can kind of started getting kicked down the road. Uh, I flew to London to meet with Paul Greengrass, uh, who was interested in directing it because uh, Stephen now wanted to produce it and have someone else direct it. After that was Ben Stiller, Pete Berg stepped forward, Gary Ross. And uh, by the way, I remember 14 years ago, back at that original meeting uh, at Stephen's house, Stephen saying, uh, and I think it's important that we get this film out before the election. 
he, the election he was talking about was 2008. And then we heard the same thing before 2012 and before 2016. And it, it seemed to me that the trouble we were having getting off the launch pad were the riots themselves that were going to inflate the cost, the budget of the film. And it was going to not be in proportion to what you know, we felt the audience appetite was going to be for the film. Uh, in other words, the box office wasn't going to match the budget. The movie had to cost less to do. And two things happened at once, I guess, that, that finally got the movie made. One, Donald Trump was elected president, and he started at his rallies rhapsodizing about the good old days when they carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and punch him in the face and uh, and, you know, beat the crap out of him uh, and that kind of thing. Just the demonizing of protests. That started happening, and I directed my first movie, Molly's Game. And Stephen was sufficiently pleased uh, with that, that he thought I should direct Chicago 7, and that the time to make it was now. And we couldn't have foreseen that uh, there would be clashes on the streets between protesters and police. We couldn't have foreseen that in one, I think it was two-week period, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd would be killed. And uh, for that matter, we couldn't have foreseen the intramural struggle on the left between the left and the further left uh, that's dramatized by Tom and Abby in film. The parallels are just uncanny. Oh, they really are. I mean, there were times when I would watch, you know, the news coverage of the protests in whether it's Minneapolis or Kenosha or Portland or Washington, D.C., when the protesters, the peaceful protesters, were cleared off the street with some kind of chemical agent at the order of the attorney general who had suddenly become politicized, just like John Mitchell is in in Chicago 7. Uh, But there were times watching the news coverage of that that I thought, you know, if you just degraded the color a little bit, it would look exactly like the footage we used from 68. I was asked a couple of days ago if the script changed at all to mirror the events uh, that were going on in this country. The answer is no. Events changed to mirror the script. And, and I've never seen anything quite like it. I thought the film was relevant when we were making it. Uh, we didn't need it to get more relevant. They've just beaten Rennie, Dave. Listen to me. We can still get everyone out of here safely. No, we can't. Now, you use some actual footage, correct? Yeah. Right. Tell me about that decision, because shooting those riots, that's so impactful in this film, and it, and it doesn't actually come in immediately. You lure us in, and we get there almost midway through the film. Tell me about shooting that and the decision to actually incorporate real footage from 68. Well, that was the decision that, remember I said uh, uh, that the problem was, you know, how do you shoot the riots? How do you create those riots in that kind of scale for the kind of budget uh, that we had to make this movie? And what it came down to, what I decided to do, was use a mixture of of real footage and footage that we shot in camera, that what I would shoot, yes, I got a couple of wide shots, but mostly I shot very tight shots of of just a club hitting a skull of, of blood coming out, of someone getting punched in the stomach, of a tear gas canister getting fired, that kind of thing. And combined it 
with the stock footage, and this wasn't just me in a, lo- a room alone doing this. Alan Baumgarten uh, is our editor, and uh, uh, his team, they, they were fantastic. And we were very lucky in that we shot those riot scenes in Grant Park where they took place. So what we shot was going sh- was gonna to match the, uh, the file footage. And then it was just a matter of getting creative with uh, how we used our footage, how we mixed it with the existing footage. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that uh, we don't actually see the riots until I think we're 54 minutes into the film when we see the riots. And I would refer to the riots as the shark in Jaws, uh, which we also don't see uh, until the end of the second act. And both of those decisions, me with the riots uh, and how we did it and, and how that came out of necessity, uh, and the shark and jaws also came out of necessity because it never worked. And Stephen every day had to figure out a new way to shoot a scene without seeing the shark yet. And so often it's some kind of production necessity that requires you to get creative and you end up doing the thing that you would have done if you had an unlimited budget. Well, this film obviously is based on historical facts. These are real people. There was this real trial, all of it. And you have described this more as a portrait, not a photograph. So right. when you're writing this, how do you how do you decide to stick completely to historical events? And then when you decide to go your own way and kind of create color around that? Talk to me a little bit about that process. You know, I think that every writer... Uh, when they're writing nonfiction, has their own internal compass. And if your internal compass isn't working, usually the studio's legal department will, will help you out there. <laughs> so, okay, yes, it's a portrait. It's, uh, it's rather it's a painting. It's not a photograph. It's not meant as journalism. Now, all these things happened. I didn't make anything up in this movie. But people don't speak in dialogue. And people's lives don't unfold in scenes that form a narrative arc. That, that, those are things that, that writers do. So trial itself lasted almost six months. Actual trials aren't really as entertaining as, as movie trials or TV trials or, or, or stage trials. So what would be important to me is, is, is the larger truth. For instance, uh, uh, here, here's a tiny thing. We built the courtroom set. The actual courtroom where the trial took place was in a, it was much smaller, uh, and it was a kind of a post-war uh, set. It resembled the, the, the kind of courtroom where the uh, O.J. trial was. And I wanted a much bigger courtroom than that for the movie, because if the whole world is watching, I wanted to feel like, you know, there were 120 extras, press people uh, in those galleries. I wanted the echo of a large hall, and mostly I wanted to feel just the size of the federal government coming down on these people. So the, our fake courtroom in the movie, to me the more important truth was the things I just described, uh, that the whole world is watching, that the federal government, uh, the weight of that, the journalistic truth is that it was a smaller courtroom. But I'll tell you what I wouldn't mess around with at all. Most of what happens with Bobby Seale is taken directly from the transcript. All of his objections and the judge batting down his objections are taken directly from the transcript. I didn't want to substitute anything for Bobby's own words. There. Your Honor, I'm not with these guys. I never even met most of them until the indictment. 
We will have order. We are eight of us here. We have signs out there that free, free the Chicago Seven. I'm not with them. Mr. Marshall, You're saying it's a conspiracy. Will you see Mr. Seal? Indictment. And speaking frankly, the U.S. attorney wanted a Negro defendant to scare the jury. I was thrown in to make the group look scary. It is just staggering to watch that play out on film and to realize that that's exactly the way that happened. Yes, and uh, it, it is exactly the way that happened. I think that anything that would make an audience member say, oh my God, did that really happen? The answer is yes. I wouldn't have made up something that made you do that. But what's really staggering isn't that it happened. It's that it feels like, you know, the the ground has been softened up for it to happen again. It also really makes you think about the unqualified judges that have been confirmed to the bench during this current administration. It's funny you should mention that. You know, we we put a postscript up on the uh, screen at the end about some of the characters, and we say that in a biannual survey of Chicago trial lawyers, that Judge Julius Hoffman was at at 87% of Chicago trial lawyers gave Judge Julius Hoffman a rating of unqualified. And that's astonishing, right? Well, the Senate just confirmed uh, a Trump nominee for the federal bench. She is now a judge. She has never been a judge before. She's never argued a case in court before uh, as a trial lawyer, never argued a motion, never deposed a witness, and the American Bar Association gave her a 100% rating of unqualified. This is a woman in her early 40s. She will be sitting on the federal bench for decades. And the American Bar Association gave her a 100% rating of unqualified, a unanimous rating of unqualified. So obviously it can happen again. It can happen again, very much so. Well, we have to talk about your use of prologue. I keep thinking of Molly's game, and I said this to you when that movie was coming out. I have never sat in a theater and been more moved by the opening three minutes of a movie ever in my lifetime of watching movies, which is a lot. Thank you. You have a way of airdropping, basically, audiences into that moment with the character that you feel like you are part of that. Uh, I really love hearing that because the way you put it, airdropping the audience in is sort of the way I put it to parachuting the audience in to something that's already moving 100 miles an hour. And it just, it makes you sit forward a little bit. And, you know, audiences can be exhilarated uh, by that. Your mind is put to work uh, right away and, and you're involved. And, uh, and you're energized. So I really enjoy doing that. That's what we do in, in Chicago 7. It starts with a, a prologue that, A, introduces our, our principal characters pretty quickly, but also uh, is just showing uh, a country just completely coming off the rails. It's incredible. And you, you never insult your audience. You're like, I know you're smart and you're going to keep up. I, um, <laughs> and it's a safe assumption but I, I assume uh, that the people who watch movies are at least as smart as the people who make movies. And in, in, in my case, I'm telling you, it's a safe bet. Tell me about writing that prologue. Is it the first thing you think about or how long do you agonize over that? I do a lot of agonizing and I do a lot of pacing around and climbing the walls before I ever write anything. And when I say a lot, I mean many months. That goes along with research. But but all the research in the world still isn't going to get you from page zero to page two if you, if you don't uh, have an idea. So 
what I felt like I had to do somehow was let a contemporary audience know what this country was like uh, right at that moment so that we could feel the pot boiling, uh, just the temperature going up uh, on, on both sides, on the sides of young protesters and on the side of Mayor Daley and, uh, uh, and the Chicago police and the people who were terrified uh, of these protesters. And, you know, there's the Cronkite clip, uh, which is kind of a gift of Cronkite saying a Democratic convention is about to begin in a police state. I just don't know how else to say it, that I knew if I could take us right to that point, that that would be a good way to airdrop the audience in. Mm-hmm. Now I want to talk a little about you as a director, because this is your second film. So I want to know, what were you most focused on as far as what you had to get right? Wow. There was a lot to be afraid of uh, here. Uh, I was, I was, there was plenty I was afraid of uh, before Molly's Game, but, you know, Molly's Game had 11 people in it, uh, and Chicago 7 has, has riots and tear gas. So I was afraid of that. I was afraid of, I was thrilled with the cast uh, that we were assembling, but I thought, how do I, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was just how do I make sure that they're all in the same movie? I felt like coming to work every morning, like I was being tossed the keys to a Formula One race car. And if I can just make sure I don't put the car in the wall, these guys are going to win the race, these actors. But, you know, you got a lot of help. Um, and uh, our director of photography, Faden Papa Michael, our production designer, Shane Valentino, uh, and uh, and our producer, Stuart Besser, uh, uh, and and Mark Platt. They they're very good at putting their bodies in between problems and me. And we we, we choreographed those riots uh, with the help of stunt coordinators, with the help of expert consultants, people. You, police officers and people who, uh, police officers who were there, um, riot experts, that kind of thing. So it all worked out. But listen, I, I mean, you asked me what, what I was worried about, what I was nervous about. The answer is really everything. I didn't stop being nervous until picture locked. Uh, I got about 48 hours uh, to, to uh, break to not be nervous. And then the nervousness begins of, are people going to like it? <laughs> and then it starts all over again, the cycle. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the actors, because each performance is so distinct, but no one is doing an impersonation. Uh, that was uh, that that was intentional. I let them know that I wasn't looking for uh, a physical or vocal impersonation uh, of anybody. That In the case of Sasha and Abby, yes, there is a kind of iconic look that uh, that Abby has and uh, and his voice with the Boston accent. But in, in no cases were we going to use prosthetics or any kind of uh, physical alteration. I just told them to play the characters in the script. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of choosing them, what did you love about Eddie Redmayne for, for Tom Hayden? Well, I think I would cast Eddie Redmayne in pretty much anything <laughs> as anyone. What I loved about Eddie is he, he, he's a great actor. Uh, and, and he's sweet and he's funny. And one thing that an actor can't fake is, uh, smart. Uh, an actor can't act smart. 
uh, they've they've got to bring that with them. We have to discuss Yahya Abdul Mateen the second, who plays Bobby Seal. He's a phenomenal actor and a great guy. He's he's just a few years out of Yale drama, and he's on a, a, a great, very popular uh, HBO series called Watchmen, and he's phenomenal uh, in the movie. You know, it was interesting. People, the actors, would. When we weren't shooting, whether it was we were in between takes, in between setups, in between scenes, uh, during times when uh, actors would normally be socializing, you're by the craft service table, you're talking to your friends, uh, that kind of thing, the cast would kind of segregate themselves on purpose. Frank Langella uh, made it clear to me at our first meeting, and he, he told me in a very sweet way, he wanted to make sure that I wasn't offended or that nobody thought that he was a bad guy. He said he didn't want to socialize uh, with any of the actors playing the defendants um, and that when everyone was called to set, he'd like to come in a back door so that he didn't have to see them until he walked into the courtroom uh, and saw them there, uh, that he wanted these guys afraid of him. He even went so far as to saying, uh, as to say, you know what, I want to uh, splash on uh, just like a lot of bay rum before I walk onto the stage. I want these guys to smell me coming. And by the same token, Yaya would just separate himself uh, a little bit from the group because Bobby wasn't part of the group uh, and Bobby didn't hang out with these guys and Bobby didn't get to go and have sandwiches in the defense uh, uh, conference room uh, and make jokes and everybody else. At night, Bobby went uh, into a jail cell. And by the same token, uh, uh, Joe Levitt would sort of just be off to the side. I mean, no, no, it's not the Jets and the Sharks, but it was always... After a few days, it was just interesting to see how they'd naturally segregate themselves uh, to just kind of stay in the place they wanted to be in for the day's work. Right. What's what's interesting and what I learned through this film is I had always heard Chicago 7 and, you know, Tom Hayden. It was somewhere, but very hazy. And I never realized until I uh, till I watched this is that it was really the Chicago 8 and it was very specific to get Bobby Seale in there to scare the jury but he had nothing to do with it I think that's so nothing and and just his just to get back to the way you introduce him and you shoot him he's just this you know strong light commanding loose guy and you're already kind of rooting for him the second you meet him yeah i can't say enough about yaya um i i, I we're going to be seeing plenty more uh, mm-hmm. i guarantee you but the the day or the night really we shot that scene that you're talking about bobby's first scene uh, on that day you could see a really happy and upbeat yaya abdul mateen uh, uh on that day uh he was the one making everybody else laugh. And, and I was talking about just this with someone the other day, and they reminded me that that's the only scene in the movie where he is a free man. Mm. Um, every other scene in the movie, he's being brought in in handcuffs. Uh, he's in a courtroom. He's being bound and gagged. Uh, he's being told to shut up uh, by the judge. And it's that first scene uh, is, is the only time we ever see him as a free man. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't really think about that, but absolutely. And you also have an all-star: Michael Keaton, Mark Rylance. I mean, it is. It's uh, uh, Jeremy Strong. Yep. Um, you know, uh, getting a chance to work with Michael Keaton was fantastic. He, I think, he only had two days of shooting, but uh, but those were a great two days. <laughs> Mark Rylance 
is from the planet Jupiter, okay? Um, he's, he's come here via Jupiter. He is such a gifted and soulful actor that uh, it's, you, you really can't take your eyes off of him. John Carroll Lynch, uh, you know, you, other than him being the Zodiac Killer, he, <laughs> he just radiates, uh, uh, you know, warmth and goodness, and he looks like exactly who Dellinger was, which was a Boy Scout troop leader, an eighth-grade science teacher, and a, a, a pacifist, uh, a conscientious objector. And uh, then Jeremy, who's the only actor in the cast that I'd worked with before, uh, he was in Molly's Game, mm-hmm. is is really something special. I think most people are discovering that when they watch Succession. But Jeremy is an extremely immersive actor. He he was Daniel Day Lewis's assistant for a while, and and learned at the uh, at the knee of Daniel Day Lewis. So like Daniel, uh, Jeremy is an extremely immersive actor. There was a scene where all I needed him to do was walk about 40 feet uh, uh, across a footbridge. Uh, he, the other guys, leaving just a small group of, of a dozen or so people, just to walk 50 feet across the footbridge. Um, uh, and this is at, at night while the big riot is going on. He would, before each take, ask one of the off-duty Chicago police officers who was playing a 1968 Chicago police officer, and that was most of them, he would ask one of these off-duty police officers to pick him up and throw him to the ground before these scenes. He just wanted to feel that. So there, <laughs> there were a lot of different approaches to acting uh, on that set. Like I said, my, my only job was to make sure everybody was in the same movie. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets their moment, too. Everyone has a very yeah. you know, character-defining scene or se- you know, several Everyone. Of them gets their moment. But I'll say this about this cast, too. This cast, which is made up largely of people who are used to starring in their own movies uh, and not being part of such a a large ensemble. Everybody gets their moment, but the cast was completely there for the other actor when it wasn't their day to have a moment or it wasn't their week to have a moment. Uh, You know, remember in that courtroom, a lot of it is about coverage, not necessarily who's on the witness stand, but seeing Jerry's face when, uh, uh, when the F- undercover FBI agent is on the stand, you know, the woman uh, mm-hmm. who Jerry still loves, um, uh, who, who turned out to be an FBI agent. And there are just a lot of days when you're going to be the highest paid extra on the set. And they were so supportive of each other to make sure that they were at full strength, even when they weren't doing anything just uh, so they could be there for the other actor. I want to get to the dynamic between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, because it's really at the center of this film. I had organized the the film into three stories, uh, ultimately, that we were going to tell at once. One was the courtroom drama. The other was the evolution of the riot. How did something that was supposed to be a peaceful protest go from that to being a bloody violent clash with the police and the National Guard? And the third story was the more personal story uh, between Abby and Tom, uh, these two guys who they're on the same side, uh, but they can't stand each other. Uh, they're each convinced that the other is hurting the cause, but by the end, they 
come to respect each other. What's your problem with me, Hayden? I really wish people would stop asking you that question. Dave wouldn't want us to answer it. One time. All right. My problem is that for the next 50 years, when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. So they're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone lost, disrespectful, foul mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. All because of me. Yeah. And winning elections, that's the first thing on your wish list. Equality, justice, education, poverty, and progress. They're second. If you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what's second. It's such a compelling conflict, the provocative Abbey way of doing things versus the Tom Hayden approach. And very much reflects, like I said earlier, uh, what's going on today between more moderate or more cautious uh, uh, Democrats uh, who are saying, can we please just win elections and then we can do these things? Uh, can we not you know, talk about the Green New Deal right now? Can we not talk about defunding the police right now? Um, and the others who are saying, no, it's high time uh, we did these things and we're not interested in incremental progress uh, anymore. We're interested in revolution. It's interesting because Tom Hayden was involved up until the very end of his life. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder often what he would be thinking now, like what he would be doing right now in this moment. Well, I can tell you, I, I, he'd be trying to help uh, because what he was doing right up until the end of his life was he was mediating disputes between gangs here in L.A. Uh, uh, the police brought him in to mediate disputes. And I'm, I, I'm sure that with his last breath, if he were alive right now, uh, he would be doing something to try to help. And he, he certainly would be speaking truth to power. He never stopped doing that. But Tom, who, who passed away four years ago now in 2016, was so helpful. He was the I got to spend time with him, uh, and, and he, other than the trial transcript, he, he was really uh, my, my first research source. And what I never would have found out uh, without Tom, what I never would have found out from the trial transcript, what I never would have found out from the books was Tom's personal feelings about Abby and Abby's about Tom. And what did you learn? Well, a lot of what I learned is in the film. I think I didn't want it to feel petty, but I, I think that part of uh, part of it uh, was that Tom has always slightly resented that Abby got more of the spotlight than than Tom did. But I, I I didn't want this to be about that. I didn't mind Tom being accused of that, uh, but I didn't want it to be about it. I wanted it to be more about what was really at the heart of it, which was that Tom felt that Abby's antics were hurting, badly hurting the, uh, the image uh, of the causes that were important to Tom, uh, that if you're not going to be serious, if you're going to try to levitate the Pentagon, if you're going to hand out daisies to soldiers, uh, and if you're going to be as rude and disrespectful uh, as you are in the way you talk to everybody, then not only are we in trouble right now, but as Tom says, 50 years from now, when people think of progressive causes, they're not going to think of poverty or education or equality or justice. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers trying to levitate the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And sure enough, in, in, in every election since, whoever is on the right will try to paint whoever is on the left as someone out of 1968. Right. It always goes back to that. Yeah. Look what's happening right now. Uh, with, uh, Trump's whole thing is, is if you elect Joe Biden, the streets are going to be on fire. Mm. What do you hope audiences feel when the credits roll? Well, let me, let me be clear. Um, before a movie can be anything else, before a movie can be important or relevant or persuasive or provocative, uh, uh, before it can be any of those things, it has to be good. Uh, It just has to be a good movie. Uh, It has to be a good story well told. Uh, So when I'm sitting down to write a script or nowadays to direct a movie, I'm not thinking about things like, what do I want the audience to be thinking after they leave the theater? Uh, I'm I'm really only involved in their experience from the moment the lights come down to the moment the lights come back up again, and and I'm only involved in the the elements of drama, uh, the things that have been around for 2,500 years. But once you've done that, and you look around and you see what the world is like now, obviously I understand that there will I hope there will uh, um, be a conversation after the lights come back up, once you're walking home, walking to your car, um, or after you've turned off Netflix. Uh, It's impossible to miss the parallels with what's going on today. And uh, I'm sure that there are going to be people uh, who'll say that these spoiled, privileged, college boy brats uh, had it coming to them, and they they should have gone to prison. They should have gotten the hell beaten out of them, and uh, and then the same for the protesters today. And there'll be others uh, who'll say, "Look, uh, there it is. Everything's exactly the same with Donald Trump in the role of Mayor Daley." I hope that we can stop demonizing protest as something that's un-American. Whether that protest is kneeling during the national anthem or that protest is taken to the street. Now, I agree with Joe Biden, looting is in protest, citing, letting, citing, setting things on fire uh, uh, is in protest. Uh, but protest is not anti-American, it's not anarchistic. I have one more uh, uh, hope for the film. If I can achieve the goal of you were happy you spent that two hours watching this movie, that, that's, I'll feel good uh, about that. Again, because of the times we're living in, this movie comes with more freight than that. But I, I, I hope people will see that we, we don't want to return to 1968, that, uh, that, that that was a kind of necessary spasm uh, that we had to have, and, and that we're 50 years better than that now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we have come a long way. We don't want to go back. We thought we'd come a long way. Uh, and we had. I really believe that we uh, 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 that we have come a long way. But you know, leadership is important. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Aaron Sorkin. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Maya Wiley, Jill Weinbanks, and Danny Greenberg about the striking parallels between the trial and events of 1968 and what we see happening in America today. We have to stand up and speak, no matter what the danger is, because the danger of not speaking up in defense of democracy is that we lose democracy. 
The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.